I want to share real quick with you before getting to our scripture passage today, just a, a few things that I've been thinking about our church plant. And uh, if you don't know, we are at two and a half months right now of regular worship services here in Bronzeville. So yeah, thanks, Darius. Yeah. Um, so that's not a long time, but I think it's maybe long enough to check in and to just ask, how are we doing as a new church? How are things going as a brand new church? And, uh, and I had a chance to talk with five or six of you this week and just listening to some of the questions you were asking about our church, I picked up on two words that I want to put in front of you today. And the first one is momentum. And the second one is commitment, momentum and commitment. Somebody emailed me this week and they said, is the honeymoon over for our new church? Is the honeymoon over? And it made me think a little bit. Is the honeymoon over? I'm married. My wife and I have been married for 11 years and we went on a honeymoon. And, uh, but at some point the honeymoon is, is over, right? Those of you who are married, you know, right? <laughs> Don Washington's like, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, all the married folk in the room, why we can agree. You you don't live your marriage as a honeymoon. That would be weird. That would just be weird. It is not reality, right? Wherever you went, if you went to Hawaii for your honeymoon or wherever you went to your, like, that's not where you live. That's not real life. And so this person emailed me and says, is our church through the honeymoon period? And I thought about that. I said, yeah, I think we are. Uh, And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that the honeymoon is over. Uh, because we can't, we can't run on adrenaline forever. We can't run on just good feelings forever. Right, at some point in a marriage, you wake up and you look at the person you're married and you go, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm being my wife right now. That's how, you know, that was her experience. Oh, oh, this is what marriage is. Oh, this, the honeymoon is over, right? Some of us are having that experience right now as a new church. Oh, I'm doing this with you. I'm a part of this new church with you. You are starting to annoy me. You are starting to seem kind of weird to me. And that's a good thing. Can that, is that okay? We're over the honeymoon. And I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Because now we can get to, A, the real work of being a church, and B, and B. We can now become crystal clear that the only way that this new church will accomplish our mission as if God does what only God can do. Because we can run on adrenaline for a while. We can push really hard for a while. We can be pretty excited for a while. But it doesn't last. Emotions go away. Amen? Emotions go away. So now is the opportunity for us to see, okay, God, how are you going to do what only you can do? How are you going to establish your church in Bronzeville? How are you going to accomplish your mission in Bronzeville? And so I've been thinking about momentum, and I think some of us have a sense like, well, is the momentum slowing down? Is it stable? Are we going in reverse? How are we doing? I think we're doing really well. You know, like all of the things that I could look at as a pastor, I would look at kind of our giving on a Sunday morning. I'd look at our attendance. I'd look at visitors. I'd look at how many people are joining our community groups. And I'd look at all those things and go, I think we're doing well. Pretty stable right now. Pretty stable right now. About two months ago, Pastor Peter Hong, who's our our lead pastor up in Logan Square, who planted uh, our church in Logan Square about nine years ago, 
He asked me this question after about one or two services here in Bronzeville. He said, David, if you were to predict, if you were to look into your, your crystal ball and predict, what, what would your momentum be like in Bronzeville? What do you think it would be? And I said, well, I think that we're going to start real strong. I said, then I think we're going to plateau for a little while. I think we're just going to kind of level off. I don't know how long that's going to be, but I think we're just going to kind of level off for a little while. And then I think we're going to start to see real steady, and this is the key word, healthy growth. We're going to start to see real steady and healthy growth. And he said, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think that's where we are, church, right now. Right now, I think that's where we are. We're in this kind of plateau, steady, stable area. This is why we're preaching through the gospel of Matthew right now. Because if if we are not being worked on by the Holy Spirit, if our lives aren't being transformed right now, we don't have anything to offer those who God may bring to our church. Amen? That's why we're focusing on complete transformation of our lives right now. I think God has given us a season as we continue to invite, as we continue to see new people come. I think God has given us a season to say, is it happening for me? Is the things that we as a church talk about, is this mission statement that we proclaim every week, is it happening for me? Because if it's not, then I'm not sure God's going to bring a whole lot more people here. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? We need to have words of life to offer others. We need to have transformed lives to offer others. So momentum. I think we're kind of at a plateau, stable place, and the Holy Spirit is preparing us for what comes next. You see what I'm saying? Are you with me? Let me say a couple other things here about this. Um, God is at work in our church. Uh, There are some of you who've started coming to this church who haven't been in church in months or years. That's, That's evidence of God's work in our church. Would you agree? There are people who who are experiencing healing in their lives, relational healing, emotional healing, who desperately need that in our church right now. That's evidence of God's work. Uh, Some of you will remember that, that about a year ago, we gathered and we were praying, God, how do you want to use us? How do you want to use our new church? And we began discerning that maybe God was going to use us to reach children and young people. Any of you remember that? You remember that conversation? Well, look where we meet. This is elementary school. We helped out with a talent show. We've had young people start to come to some of our community groups and start to come to service on Sunday morning. That is evidence of God's work in our church. Uh, We've had opportunities to begin serving our neighborhood already, to serve Bronzeville, doing the cleanup day, planting the flowers. Y'all look at the flowers lately out there. They're still looking good. They're still hanging in there helping out with the talent show. I don't know if you know this, but this school has already asked us to provide mentors for some of their students. Did you know that? I don't know if we're in a place to say yes to that or not yet, but there are opportunities. I met this week with Mel uh, Monroe, I think that's right, founder and president of BARC, which stands for Yeah, you're doing as good as I would have done. Bronzeville Area Resident, Residential and Commercial Council, I think, something like that. He founded it about eight years ago. He and I sat down, we met, he told me all about their organization. He wanted to know all about our church. And by the end of it, he said, well, let me tell you where we could use some help. He said, we've identified different precincts in Bronzeville where there's um, a lot of liquor stores. 
And we've found after a lot of research that these are kind of hotbeds of violence and crime in our neighborhood. And so we're working, this is him saying, so we're working to petition that some of these liquor stores in some of these key areas be shut down so that our neighborhoods could be safer, so there could be safe environments for our children, so that local business owners who are having a hard time starting their businesses would have the opportunity to do that. He says, so how many people can you send me to help us with that? I don't know. <laughs> there are opportun- God is giving us opportunities as a church, as a church for us to participate in God's mission in this neighborhood and beyond. And that doesn't even touch on the things that is happening in in individual lives in our church. And as the pastor, I get to hear a lot of those kinds of stories that you might miss out on. This is why you need to be in a community group, by the way. That's where you hear these kinds of stories of life transformation. God is at work in our church. There is momentum. God is active. We're going to continue working to build momentum in our church. We're going to be identifying what are the key things that we need to identify as a brand new church that we can be looking at. And I'm going to be sharing those with you over the next couple months. As a church, here's what we look for to see if if we're moving in the right direction. We're just going to be totally up front with you guys. Here's what we look for together. Uh, We're going to have this concert of prayer that Michelle mentioned on July 21st, Wednesday evening. I hope you're marking that down on your calendar right now. We're going to be praying together as a church for God's plan that we would be able to hear what God has for us as a church. We're looking to put together a a retreat for our church this fall, an invitation to racial righteousness that's run by our denomination that focuses on racial reconciliation. A Friday night and a Saturday. I'm going to be inviting you all to that pretty soon, as soon as we have those details. Um, opportunities to invite your friends and neighbors this fall. We're going to be looking for creative ways to do that. I've been networking with some of the colleges and universities in the area about how we can be partnering with their campus ministries. So there are opportunities coming for us to invite, for us to bring. But my, the question I think for you and I is, what does God want to do in me right now to prepare us for that time? Are you with, do you hear what I'm saying? Will you ask that question? Will you pray over that question? God, what do you want to do in me so that I can be in a place to contribute to your mission in our church? Would you pray over that, please? Second word is commitment. Momentum and commitment. Let me speak to those of you who've been uh, at this church plant for a year, two years already. Is anybody feeling tired? Raise your, come on, Josh Pyle, don't be like, yeah, 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 I'm feeling a little bit tired. I'm feeling a little bit tired, a little bit worn out. It's hard work, would you agree? Dang, who knew starting a church would be such hard work? Michelle and Carlos Dodson knew. They just didn't tell the rest of us. No, I'm kidding. Let me speak to those of you who've been at this for a while. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You've taken some of your vacation time and given it to our church. You've put some of your own personal finances in some of the ministries of our church. You've sacrificed time from family so that you could be at at different meetings. You've prayed, you've labored in prayer over this church. Thank you. And don't stop. We still need you. Those of you who've been at this for a year or two years, we still need, we need your leadership. We need your service still. This isn't the time to say, okay, we're at weekly services. I can, I'm out of here. We still need you. However God will allow you to serve and to minister at our church, we need you. Are you hearing me? Do you know that you're needed? I don't want anybody to walk out here, do they need me? I don't think they really need me. No, 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 no. We need you. We need you. And then let me speak to those of you who are maybe kind of new 
Maybe it's your first Sunday. You've been coming for a few Sundays. We need you too. It's a very simple message I have for you this morning. Look, we need your energy. We need your enthusiasm. We need your fresh eyes as you come at this church going, look, y'all haven't even thought of this. Or do you see what you're missing here? We need that. Would you agree, old timers? We need that. If you've been here longer than four weeks, you're an old timer at this point. We need you, new folks. We need you to join a community group Bible study. If you're not in that already, we need you to do that. Who's in a community group? Raise your hand. Put your hand up. Just put your hand up. Look, okay, so if you're not in one, talk to one of these people afterwards, okay? Ask about it. What happens in these Bible studies? What do you all do? We need you to be in one of those. We could really use you to help begin serving in one of the areas of our church. I was talking with Lauren at the picnic, and she told me that she signed up to, to help out with the Kid City ministry. And she probably thought I was crazy because I was like, yeah, that's wonderful. She's like, I just want to help. Like, yes, yes, yes. That's what we need. That's what we need. If you're not serving on a regular basis in our church, would you pray about that? We have folks who have been doing it every single week, and we need to relieve them a little bit. Okay? Stop by the welcome table on the way out. We'll let you know how you can do that. Here's the last thing I want to say before we get to our sermon. Who knows if you're not here on a Sunday morning? Who in our church knows when you're not going to be here and why you're not going to be here? Does that sound kind of big brotherish? <laughs> this isn't about looking over your shoulder. This is about the, the theological reality that this church is a new family in Jesus. We don't just come and show up and run a program. Somehow, mysteriously, if God has called you here, you are a part of this new family. That's what the Bible says. You're a new, we are a new community, a new family. So if you're not here on a Sunday morning, we're going to be worried after you. Seriously. Seriously. What, what, are they okay? Are they traveling? Is somebody sick? Right? It was great for me a few weeks ago to be able to say, hey, Derek and Bethany, they're not here because they just had a baby. And our church could celebrate that. We could pray for them. We could ask, what do they need? What meals do they need? Who knows if you're not going to be here on a Sunday? Now, that's just one kind of little example. You hear what I'm saying? We, we care about you. We need to know how we as a church can support you, can encourage you, can be there for you. Do you hear what I'm saying? So ask yourself this question. If I don't show up on a Sunday morning, who knows why I'm not here? Who's going to be my representative? He says, no, 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 don't, don't worry after Sonia. She's okay. She just had to travel to be with her family this weekend. She's fine. Or... Sonia's sick. We got to pray for her. That's why she's not here today. Do you hear what I'm saying? Momentum and commitment. Momentum and commitment. Join me in praying over these things, please, for our church, that God will give us discernment to know where we are now and where he wants to take us, and that we would, each and every one of us, have the ability to say, this is how I'm called to contribute to the mission of our church. You hear me? Let me pray for us. God, uh, we were praying this morning before the service started on just uh, thinking through all of the things that you have already done for us. God, the, the reality of us being in this room is, is a result of answered prayer. Uh, the result of the, the mix of people that's in this room is a result of answered prayer. The, the work that your Holy Spirit is doing in our lives right now is a result of you answering our prayers. And so, and so, Lord, even as we look to the future, as we wonder what you have for us in the future, we stop and we just thank you for what you've already done. You have been so good to us. You have never let us down. You have never failed us. 
not even for a moment. And so, God, we ask and we look forward to what you have for us out of a deep sense of gratitude for what you've already done. We come to you as your children who you've asked, who you've asked us to bring everything to you. And so we bring this desire to see you at work in our church and in our city. That's our desire, Lord. And so would you answer our prayers? Would you show us what you have next for us? God, if there's anybody in our congregation who's discouraged today, I pray that you would encourage them. If there's anybody who's having a hard time seeing your activity, I pray that you would open their eyes, that even this morning they'd have a glimpse that you are at work in our church and in our city. I pray that there wouldn't be a single person, God, in this, in this room today who wouldn't have even a, a, a small, a fresh encounter with you. Oh, yes, that's our God. Oh, yes, that's who we serve. He is so good. He is so faithful. So encourage our hearts. Lord, increase our faith so that we, so that we can see what you're going to do. Maybe not in all the details, but we know it will be good. We know that you're going to reach more people. We know that you're going to use us to advance your gospel mission in our world. And for that, we're deeply grateful. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. 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 Okay, now the sermon. (laughs) Open your Bible to Matthew. Open your Bible to Matthew. By the way, we have, uh, thanks to Gina, Gina, We have cold Izzy drinks waiting for you after the service today. So just, they're they're chilling in the teacher's lounge as we speak, getting ready for you. So So if I go a half an hour or so extra, you won't mind. That's not going to happen. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at a very, very well-known portion of Scripture today. And hopefully come at it with fresh eyes. Pastor Michael preached last week about the kingdom of God, and he, he titled his sermon. Anybody remember the title of Pastor Michael's sermon last week? Show and tell. Show and tell. And he talked about the kingdom of heaven and how Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, but it wasn't just words, it was actions. And so Pastor Michael last week talked to us that, that, that Jesus came healing and liberating the spiritually oppressed even as he came proclaiming the kingdom of God. Showing the kingdom and telling the kingdom, words and actions. It's a good reminder for us as a church. We're not going to be a church that just talks about Jesus. We're going to be a church that demonstrates what Jesus is like. Amen? Showing and telling the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came liberating the spiritually oppressed and healing the sick. But then in in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we see Jesus say this to the crowds, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is near. Do you remember that? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, turn away from anything that would be distracting you from God. Turn away from anything, any sin, any temptation, anything, any idol in your life that would be in place of God and prepare yourself because something is happening. The kingdom of heaven is coming. It's near. Why? Why? Because Jesus has come. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the anointed one, the Messiah, as we preached about a few weeks ago, because Jesus has come, the kingdom of heaven is near. We don't understand the kingdom of heaven outside of the fact that Jesus has come. So Jesus comes showing and telling the kingdom of heaven. We'll get that slide of, uh, of Galilee or Capernaum, Mark. Uh, again, Pastor Michael mentioned this last week. Uh, Jesus was preaching in the region of Galilee, which is kind of a hotbed of political 
uh, dissent and unrest, uh, different rebellions took place there. It was, a, it was a, a, an interesting place to be, and this is where Jesus sort of makes his uh, home territory. Uh, Jesus uh, lives in Capernaum for a while, and he preaches and he teaches in this area. And then in our passage this morning, uh, Jesus leads some people out to a mountainside, which is probably overlooking the, the Sea of Galilee, sits down and begins to teach them. If you can't find that, it's not a big deal. Um, and he teaches them one of the most famous sermons in all the Bible. Anybody know what it's called? Remember what it's called? Say it loud. Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. Probably known by a lot of people who maybe never even read the Bible, right? Pretty well known. Pretty well known. Uh, it's long. I'm not going to preach the whole thing today. Uh, we're going to divide it up into a few, a few different Sundays. But he sits down and he begins to teach them about the kingdom. Uh, Jesus, uh, when, he, when he begins preaching, he, um, he sits down. He sits down. Uh, and Matthew includes this because it's an important detail. It's an important detail. Uh, in the ancient Near East, in the Jewish culture, uh, a, a Jewish teacher was known as a rabbi. Anybody heard that word? A rabbi, okay? And when a rabbi began to teach, he would often sit down. And, and this was actually a position of authority. Now, that, that's maybe a little odd for us. We're used to pastors or speakers or politicians, you know, I mean. But, but to sit down, Matthew includes this because Jesus is now teaching from a position of authority. And we see this at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount when the people who are listening in, Matthew tells us, are amazed because Jesus taught with authority, not like the teachers they were used to hearing. Now around Jesus, uh, as, he, as he prepares to preach the Sermon on the Mount, are his disciples. Say disciples. This is a huge word for us. This is a huge word for us because these were Jesus's students. But they were not students as we know students. When you and I uh, go to school or went to school, the goal of our education is to learn stuff, right? To get as much in our brain as possible, right? Or to get a degree, I guess, maybe for some of us. It's just, get, just get out of there, get the degree. But the point of our education is to learn something. And then we take tests to prove that we know what the teacher taught us. Completely not the object for the Jewish rabbi. The Jewish rabbi wasn't so much interested in a list of things that you could regurgitate on a test. The rabbi was interested in whether your life changed. And so here's Jesus, the rabbi. He sits down. His disciples, this is the first time we see this in Matthew, sit down around him. And, and listen, they are with Jesus 24-7. Can I be a little gross for a second? Like, it's hard for Jesus to go to the bathroom without a disciple being there. Seriously, 24-7. Why? Because it's not just what Jesus says. It's everything that Jesus does, the way he says it. When Jesus goes off by himself for times of prayer, everything that Jesus does. Why? Because the goal of their education was to become like their rabbi. Jesus wasn't going to give them a test at some point and say, okay, let's see if you're paying attention. Write down the right answers. The test was whether their lives were transformed, whether they had become like their rabbi. Are you with me? So Jesus sits down. He begins to teach. The disciples are around them. Who else is around them? Who else is around them? The crowd. The crowd. Why is the crowd there? Why do you think the crowd is there? 
Any ideas? Any guesses? Why is this huge crowd kind of going up on this mountainside to hear this pretty new rabbi teach? Say again. Yeah, the word had gotten out, right, Darius? Jesus was healing and releasing the spiritually oppressed. The word had gotten out. Matthew tells us in the passage before that the the word was getting out just even beyond Galilee. People were coming from all over in order to be healed. So what would have you felt like if you had walked, maybe for days, right? Because you heard there's this new rabbi. He's hot stuff. He can heal you. And you get there. And what does Jesus do? He's been doing these amazing things, miraculous things. What does Jesus do? All right, I got some things to tell y'all. Would you be disappointed? Here's the thing I find fascinating. No one's disappointed. At the end of the passage, we're told that people are amazed at what they'd heard. There is no separation for Jesus between action and his teaching. Life in Jesus is both in the action of Jesus and in the words of Jesus. And so people come maybe seeking to be healed from their physical disease, but they encounter something in Jesus that deeply satisfies them. The words of life transform them. And this rabbi, who maybe for some of them it was the first time having met Jesus, is speaking and teaching in a way that absolutely blows them, blows them away. So they've come for what Jesus has done, but they stay for what he says. And what does Jesus do? What does he say? Listen, listen to this. Jesus' words and actions show us, show the crowds, that in Jesus the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay? Jesus has been proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. Now look, his words and his actions demonstrate to the crowds that indeed the kingdom of heaven had come near. You with me so far? The kingdom of heaven had come near. And here's the key thing for us. Because the kingdom had come, everything had changed. Because in Jesus the kingdom of heaven had come, everything had changed. And so I think what Jesus is doing for the Sermon on the Mount is like he's wrestling with the people. He's fighting with the people. He's trying to show them that, look, because the kingdom of heaven has come, everything is different now. What you had thought to be true, no, 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 is different now in this new kingdom. Now, a couple weeks ago, we, uh, we talked about one of the most dangerous words in the English language. Anybody remember? Come on, help the preacher out. Tell me that you remember. Tell me what you remember. Most dangerous word. If, if, do you remember? If. Thank you, Christine. If, if, if. And we talked about the fact that Jesus is led into the wilderness. Remember this? Remember this? Jesus is baptized by his cousin John, right? Holy Spirit of God descends on him. The, 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 the Father speaks from heaven. This is my son. You remember? You remember? And then Jesus is led where? Where? Wilderness. 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 And there he fasts for 40 days, right? And then the tempter, the Bible says, the evil one, Satan, comes to him. And what does he say to Jesus right away? If what? If you are the son of God. Remember? 
If you are the Son of God, he does this twice, first two temptations. If you are the Son of God, then. And we said that if is one of the most dangerous words in the English language because it undermines our identity in Jesus. You remember? And it's from that point where we are led into temptation. Once we are no longer grounded in our beloved identity in Jesus, that's when we're susceptible to temptation. Right? Jesus, of course, rejects this if. We're going to find another if in our passage today, but it's, it's paired with another word. If, then. Write that down if you're taking notes. If, then. And I want to, I want to uh, argue with you this morning that if, then is the way you and I live our lives every day. That you and I get up out of bed every day and without even knowing it, we put on our glasses, if, then. And that's how we live. If I work hard enough, I'll get the promotion that I deserve. Uh, If I give him what he wants, I will feel that love and acceptance. We live, if then, if then, if then. Do we have that movie poster? Do you have that in there? I think this if then mentality permeates everything. Who saw this movie? Who saw this movie? For real, like three of us? Denzel, come on. Um, okay, the book of Eli. I'm not going to show you any clip because it's kind of, it's, you know, maybe not appropriate. Um, if then, look, look, look. I think if then is so prevalent in our world, in our culture, the way of understanding the world, if this, then this. If I do this, then this will happen. If I don't do this, then this won't happen. I think it is so prevalent in our culture that you could like impose it on just about any movie and understand the movie. So in this movie, in the book of Eli, if Denzel doesn't complete his quest, civilization is ruined, right? Those of you who've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, right? If Denzel, and I'm not going to give it away, it's a pretty good movie. It's a pretty good movie, right? Some like deep theological stuff in that movie, I'm I'm telling you. Um, Some of you, Curtis, you don't believe me. You're like, what? I'm serious, man. There's some deep stuff in there. If, if, if Eli, if Denzel uh, does not complete his epic quest, then civilization is over forever. I think you can put, just next movie you watch, just do the if-then thing. You'll see. Super, super common. Okay, Ryan's going to actually come up here. And, and so I was thinking about this if-then thing and thinking like just how ingrained this is in our culture. And I'm like, this, like, this reminds me of some kind of mathematical sort of thing. And I don't know anything about math. Like, really? My, uh, my wife is the one who does our financial budgeting and everything. So, um, but Ryan, he does. So I was like, Ryan, help us see, like, mathematically how this if-then perspective on the world looks, right? Anybody like math in here? Okay, good. See, see, Carlos, there's some people who are going to like this illustration. See? All right, go ahead, Ryan. All right. Wow, I'm, I'm shocked. We actually have people who like math. Well, so, okay, so we're going to take this. And uh, for whatever reason, Pastor David thought if we take the Bible and turn it into math, it will make more sense. And we'll, we'll see if that works. Um, so Mark is going to pull up, I think. Um, I'm just going to show you how to make if-then into a formula, and uh, meaning we're going to have some uh, variables, which because math likes to make everything really difficult, we're going to turn it into P's and Q's. Okay, so okay, it's called the conditional. Here's the idea. You get P and Q, 
and they're both propositions, meaning they're either true or they're not true. So like, it is Sunday, or math is fun, or whatever. And then you write them P arrow Q, and that means if P, then Q. So if P is true, then Q has to be true. Or you also, in math, often say P implies Q is the idea. So if we go to the next one, we can have a couple examples. So P is it storms, Q is Pastor David hides under the bed, you know, P arrow Q, you can figure it out. Or uh, you're in the Dodson House community group, then you're a superior human being. <laughs> Most of our group isn't actually here today, so I can't get any cheering out of that, I guess. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, I proved it. So anyway, that's the idea. So now we're going we're gonna to get this really fun, and we're going to make a table out of this. Is anybody having high school math nightmares right now? Some people maybe are asleep. Okay, this is how this works. You have P at the top, then you have Q, and then you have if P, then Q. And then you say, okay, what if P is true, the first line, and Q is true, then is the conditional true? And you'd say yes, right? So if P happened, so we'll use the example because I spent half my life trying to convince people of this. If you study, then you get an A, okay? Uh, so you studied, you got an A, then the conditional was true, right? And then the second line says, if you didn't study and you didn't get an A, then that's still okay. The conditional still was fine, right? Um, so we put true under the P, then Q. And then the third one is, you didn't study, but you still got an A. Now, that's the one most people are like, well, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right. But still, technically, it's not a contradiction because you didn't do the if, so you don't know what's going to happen, right? Um, but the last one is the problem. So this is where the whole thing breaks down. So if P happens and Q doesn't, so if you studied, but you still didn't get an A, then the conditional has to be false. So that's, that's where it breaks down. Um, and that, that's our mathematical if-then. Okay, so Ryan, let me just make sure I'm getting this right. Like, the last one is, if you study hard, but you don't get a good grade, then... So this, this actually, this is, this is what I think is... Okay, I'm going to work hard here. <laughs> Using a side of my brain I don't usually use. This is key. This is actually, I think, key for our pastor this morning. Because I think this is where the if-then way of living breaks down. Are you with me? Because I studied hard, and I didn't get a good grade. This is where the if-then way of living breaks down. Because, because when we approach life this way, and remember, my argument is all of us do this without thinking about it. If we approach life this way, then we can't get anything wrong. And even, even, even if we do everything right, Still no guarantees. We've been told there are. If you do this, then this is guaranteed to happen. But I think most of us know what's true. Here's the other problem with the if-then way of living. You are not Denzel Washington. In case you didn't know. Listen, you are not. I'm just going to speak some hard words of truth to you for a second. (laughs) You are not good enough. You are not strong enough. You are not smart enough, patient enough, loving enough, faithful enough, wise enough, trusting enough, kind enough, or Lord knows, handsome enough, like Denzel, to ensure the perfect ending to your quest. I, that's, the, that's the beauty of Hollywood, right? Denzel can be perfect. He can do it. He doesn't have to, he, he won't fail. So it can all depend on him, and we know that if he does it, then there's going to be a good outcome to the story. 
But that's, it just doesn't work that way, does it? The if-then way of living, the if-then way of living is an incredibly tiring way to live. It'll wear you out. Because even if you do everything right, there's no guarantees. And you, if you're honest with yourself, have a sneaking suspicion that at some point you're going to fail. And it's going to fall apart. And what then? If life, if life ultimately is, is up to you and up to me, if I do this, then this is guaranteed to happen. In moments of our, our most sober-minded honesty, we have to admit, I can't do it. I'm just not strong enough, good enough, smart enough. Unfortunately, many of us bring this if-then lens to the Bible. And so we read the Bible and we impose this, well, well, I guess the Bible's saying that if I do this, then this should happen. We look at the Beatitudes, our passage this morning even this way. If I am meek, then I will inherit the earth, whatever that means. One of my favorite authors on this uh, passage, uh, Dallas Willard. Can we put that up there, Mark? Do we have that? Don't have that. Okay, listen. This is how he puts it about the Beatitudes. Listen closely. He says, the Beatitudes are not teachings on how to be blessed. Did you hear that? The Beatitudes are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. The Beatitudes are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. Some of you, like that's enough. It just kind of, bleh, okay, I don't know how to read the Bible anymore then. Because that's how we read the Bible. That's how a lot of us read the Bible. It's like the divine instruction book sent down from God, right? How many of you, how many of you ever, just be honest, have done this? God, what am I supposed to do? They did not deviate from the king's commands to the priest or to the Levites in any matter, including to, what is that? Okay. And we do it again, right? Until we get one that we like can at least understand, right? We treat the Bible like it's this instruction book oftentimes, and we do that to the Beatitudes. And Dallas Willard is here saying, you can't do that. They are not instructions. The Beatitudes are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They do not even indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. So what are the Beatitudes then? What are the Beatitudes then? Oh, good. There it is. There it is. There it is. What are the Beatitudes? Do we have that second? Okay, good. Put that up. The Beatitudes, this is, this is, this is not Dallas Willard now. This is David Swanson now. So, uh, you know, the Beatitudes are Jesus' announcement of a completely new reality called the kingdom of heaven and a new description of what life within this new reality is like. We're going to break it down here, okay? The rest of the sermon is just going to break this down. But hang on. I need you to hang on to this. The Beatitudes are Jesus' announcement of a completely new reality and his description 
of what life within this new reality is like. Announcement and description. That's where we're going to kind of hang out for the rest of the sermon. Announcement and description. Let's start with announcement. We're told in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. What's the other word for good news? Gospel. It's the same word in the Greek. It could be translated, Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, what's that good news? What's that gospel? Matthew doesn't tell us back in chapter 4. He just tells us that he's doing it. Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. Great. What is it? This is our first opportunity to know. If you look at Matthew so far, we don't know. But now we get to hear this is what the good news that Jesus is preaching is, okay? He's telling. He's telling. Remember, showing and telling the kingdom. The Beatitudes is the first glimpse of this good news. So because the kingdom has come, Jesus can claim that all manner of people are blessed. Because the kingdom have come, all manner of people are now blessed, Blessed is a tricky word. Let me say a couple things about blessed. Blessed is, um, is something that we churchy people sometimes say, right? We say we're looking for God's blessing. We're praying for God's blessing. We want God to do something for us. It's a tricky word to translate. Uh, you could actually maybe use the word fortunate in the Beatitudes. Fortunate are those. Or you could use the word happy. Happy are those. Unfortunately, none of our English words really kind of capture it. So the best way to think about blessed is this. The state of being blessed is one which other people want to share in. The state of being blessed is one in which other people want to share in. Have you you ever seen somebody like that? Right, like where you you know them from a distance, you've had a conversation with them, and it's like their, their life, their way of living, their way of interacting with their circumstances is such that you say, I don't totally get that, but I want that. Have you had that experience? This isn't jealousy. You're like, I I want that. This isn't envy. This isn't lust. This is like a pure desire. Ah, The way that person lives, that's the blessed life. I want to share in that. Are we a blessed church? Are we a blessed church? Do people look at New Community Bronzeville and say, I don't totally understand those people? Oh, but I'd like to experience what they have. I don't totally get what they're doing, but something about their lives, I'd like to experience that. That's the blessed life, okay? So when Jesus says, blessed are, that's what he's getting at. A state of being, a state of living that other people want to share in. By the way, just for your own sake, beatitude is just the word blessed in Latin, okay? So that's what that is for those of you who are interested in that kind of thing. Let's take a couple examples here and see how the Beatitudes are an announcement of this new reality, okay? A couple of examples from the Beatitudes. Let's start with chapter uh, 5, verse 3. Uh, this is the poor in spirit. Jesus says, this is the, the first words that Jesus shares on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit, what does that mean? We don't know. Um, it could mean actual poverty. That's how Luke translates it. Blessed are the poor, those who are actually experiencing physical poverty. Or it could be uh, those who are humble before God. 
That's how the Old Testament often uses this language. Blessed are those who are humble in their approach to God. And one scholar will say, nope, it's about poverty. Another scholar will say, nope, it's about humility before God. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It would matter if we had an if-then perspective to life. Then it would matter a lot. If you are poor, then you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you are humble before God, then you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't saying, look, you need to be like this in order to get this. You need to behave like this in order to receive. No, 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 no. Jesus is announcing an entirely new reality. The kingdom of heaven has come. Blessed are those who are poor. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is here now. Blessed are those who are humble before God. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come now. The poor or the humble before God, whichever it is, are blessed because Jesus has come. Not because they are poor. Not because they are super humble before God. If you've been in church long enough, you've had an experience where you come up to somebody, right? Maybe they sang in the choir. Maybe they're helping out the hospitality team. And you say, I just want to thank you for your service today. Anybody done this? Thank you for serving our church. And this person does one of these things. Don't thank me. Don't thank me. Thank Jesus. Don't even look at me. Just thank God. It's all God. God gets all the glory and all the praise. Anybody? Like, I want to gag. Can I just be honest with you? Like, that just, uh, ugh. Because you know what that strikes me as? That strikes me as an if-then way of living. I got I to gotta be perfectly humble all the time, or else God's not going to give me what I want. If I don't come across as people don't think that I'm humble, then... Now, if you ever say that to me, I'm not going to gag. I'm going to trust that you really, you know, like you really want people to see Jesus. So that's, just a, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But just say you're welcome, okay? Like if someone says thank you for search, you're welcome. That's enough. That's cool. Like that's real, okay? Let's just look at another one here real quick. If this isn't like, if you're not getting this yet, just wait, okay? This is what I think Jesus is fighting with the people because it's so hard. It's so hard. We're so steeped in a certain way of approaching life. If then, if I do this, then I'm going to get this. If I do this, then I deserve to get this. That Jesus has to give them example after example after example to show them that there's an entirely new way of living. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. How is it possible? How is it possible for a mourning person to be blessed? The people who Jesus is preaching to, remember, people in Galilee, they know mourning. They've been oppressed. They probably know people who've been crucified by the Romans, okay? They, they live in a very bloody area. They've been taxed into poverty. They know what it is to mourn. So Jesus coming and saying, blessed are those who mourn, that's a, that's a significant thing to say. It could sound trite. It could sound like he's just glossing over their circumstances, right? In fact, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing at all. Those who mourn are blessed because in Jesus there is comfort. Because within this new reality of the kingdom of God, there is now comfort available to everyone. Now, um, 
let me go back for a minute. A few weeks ago, we had the cross here. We had the throne here. Do you guys remember that sermon? Between the cross and the throne. And we talked about the fact that Jesus had a defeated death on the cross, was no longer on the cross. And we were waiting for the day when Jesus would return to restore and to recreate all things so that God the Father would rule over his perfect creation for all time. Do you remember that? And we said we live in here somewhere, right? Between the cross and the throne. Between the cross and the throne. I think we get hints at this even in the Beatitudes. Because some of the Beatitudes are present tense. And some of them are future tense. Blessed are you because you will experience this now. And blessed are you because you will experience this in the future. So the kingdom of heaven being near is a both now and a not yet. Is a both here and coming. I think this might be why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, it's near. Uh, in, in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter, uh, uh, very end, chapter, or, or towards the middle, chapter 7, um, do we have that, Mark? Chapter 7, verse 17. Um, we hear this uh, from, from the Apostle John. He says, for the Lamb, now that's Jesus, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be, future, 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 will be their shepherd. He, meaning Jesus, will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why can Jesus say, blessed are you who mourn? Is mourning a state to be desired? No. Is Jesus glorifying those who are experiencing pain and mourning? No, no. Blessing is available to even those experiencing mourning because the kingdom of heaven had come and comfort was available to everyone. Why? Because Jesus was present now. Are you getting this? Are you getting this? Stand up and move around if you need to. I know it's kind of toasty in here. Uh, One more example. One more example. Then we're going to get to the description. Chapter, uh, or excuse me, verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. This one, I think, is the most clear beatitude that is in opposition to the if-then way of living. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Why? Why are they persecuted in this passage? For righteousness. So this is maybe like, your, what's the last one called that you had on the chart? Whatever the last one that Ryan had. If this, then this. If you are righteous, Jesus says what? You may be persecuted. I think this directly kind of subverts the if-then way of living. Because, because in an if-then world, we'd say, if I was righteous, God would take care of me, bless me, protect me, right? Oh, but that's not what it says at all, is it? Blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? For righteousness. In the Bible, righteousness can mean a few different things. It can mean God's salvation. It can mean, can mean personal purity before God. Or it can mean uh, uh, um, justice for the oppressed. Those three things, right? All three of these things, we'd say if a person is doing any of those in an if-then world, then God should protect them from persecution. And Jesus says, uh, blessed are those of you who are going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. I, w- I went on a mission trip when I was in college, like 18 years old. I was at the small college in North Carolina, and somehow... I really can't even remember how. I got hooked up with this Methodist church, kind of this backwoods, North Carolina. 
Methodist church, and I was from Southern California, so it's kind of an interesting culture shock. Have you been to, like, backwoods churches in North Carolina? You know, it's, you know, it's different than Southern California, just a little bit. And uh, so I go on this missions trip with about 20 uh, men who are all 50 or above, and I'm like 18. And so it was an interesting couple weeks um, in Paraguay. We went to Paraguay, and we built a church out of bricks because these guys were brick masons. As they worked with their hands, they, they... one night we went out to this uh, Bible study, and it's kind of the outskirts. You might call it this, uh, a suburb of Asuncion, which is the capital of Paraguay, um, but it's you know not suburbs as we would know it, kind of ramshackle dirt roads, uh, people building houses with what materials they could find. And, and so we went to this Bible study, a few of us, and there was maybe 10 or 15 uh, Paraguayan folks at this Bible study, and we met outside because there wasn't really a lot of electricity where these folks lived, but there was a street lamp. And so people pulled chairs out around the street lamp, and we sat around it to have this Bible study. Like, okay, this is cool. Well, pretty soon as we're, as we're doing this Bible study, people are walking by, and they're making these kind of crude remarks. Uh, and then cars are driving by, and they're honking real loud to try to disrupt the Bible study. And this is different. Like, that's not normal for me, you know? And so we asked, we asked uh, the folks, you know, like, is, so what's the deal here? Um, they said, oh, this kind of stuff it happens all the time. I mean, people will cut off our electricity. People throw stuff at us. Um, this is just normal. Oh, yeah, you know, like, like in this area, to be someone who confesses Jesus and to, um, you know, to want to see Jesus' mission advanced is, um, yeah, you, can, you just kind of expect that here. Oh, oh. The most interesting thing was their demeanor in the situation. We're blessed. Not because we're being persecuted. We're blessed because we are citizens of this kingdom. We're blessed because of what Jesus has done for us. Yeah, but you're being persecuted. Yeah, that doesn't change the fact that we're still blessed. We're not blessed because we're being persecuted. We're blessed in spite of being persecuted. Because of what Jesus has already done for us. So yeah, we might get some stuff tossed at us occasionally. We might have people turn electricity off, throw things at But, 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 that doesn't change what Jesus has done. That doesn't change the kingdom that Jesus has brought us into. Are you tracking? Are you with me? Jesus comes announcing that the kingdom of heaven is near. Entirely new way of living. But here's the second thing that the Beatitudes do. They describe what life in that kingdom is like. Our way of living is directly related to the way we understand our reality. Okay? The way you live, the way I live, the decisions that we make, it's directly tied to what we believe to be true about our world. So an if-then perspective, you might have a, 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 young, a young son who's been abused by his father. And in an if-then world, that young son might say, well, if I can just make my dad happy, then he won't publicly humiliate me anymore. Now, that's not true because it's the dad's fault. It's the dad's problem. It has nothing to do with the son, right? The abused son. But an if-then world leads that son to think it's my fault. If I could just keep dad happy, then he would like me more. The way that we understand the world to work directly leads to the way we live in this world. And so the, the Beatitudes are not just an announcement. They're a description of what life in this new kingdom is like. Our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven directly leads to new ways of living. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What is meek? Anybody know what meek is? Timid? Quiet? 
Yep. More reserved. Say that again. A quiet strength. Yep. I, it's not a word in our culture that we really like, probably. It's not like, that guy's really meek. Right? Like, I mean, if you're, if you're a single guy and you're putting your profile up on a dating website, right? Not in the top five list of attributes, I'm thinking, right? Like, I'm really meek. Oh, oh. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe some of you guys, maybe you should try that. Maybe that'll work. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think maybe quiet strength maybe gets at it. Because you know what? Jesus uses this language for himself. It's translated a little bit differently, but in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says about himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Same word, meek, same word. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Maybe a better way to understand what meek is is by what Jesus doesn't say. Blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the earth. He doesn't say blessed are the religious. Blessed are the violent. Blessed are the power. No, no, no. Blessed are the meek. Same language that Jesus uses for himself. A description of life in the kingdom. Remember, this is not, if you are meek, then you will inherit the earth, right? We all there? We all past that? I keep hammering this. Rather, rather, citizens of the kingdom of heaven live in the pattern of their king who defeated death, who defeated his enemies, not through violence, but through the cross. We're not meek in order to get something. We're meek because we live in the pattern of our Savior who invited us into this new kingdom through his defeat of death and evil, not through violence, but on the cross. The attitudes are both an announcement and a description. Verse 7, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The only way, the only way for us to be citizens of this new kingdom, the only way for us to know this new reality that Jesus comes announcing is to have received mercy. You see that? There's no other way for us to enter the kingdom of God. There's no other way for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no other way for us to be in relationship with Jesus than having received mercy, right? So, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy mercy, not an if-then. Titus chapter 3. Do we have that verse up there, Mark? Titus chapter 3. Let me start reading it to you, just the beginning part of it here. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his, but because of his, our entrance into the kingdom of heaven was because of God's mercy, right? So we live as citizens in this kingdom as merciful people. We're we're blessed. And so we live mercifully. We don't live mercifully in order to be blessed. We're already blessed. We've already been invited into this new kingdom. And so we live the way that our Savior lived for us. Mercifully. Both an announcement and and a description. Verse 8, the peacemakers. The peacemakers. Blessed are the... I'm sorry, that's not right. Uh, Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God or children of God. Uh, Worship team, you can go ahead and come back on up here. Uh, Peace in the Bible uh, is not just um, an absence of violence or war. It includes that, but it's not just that. Peace in the Bible is is harmony in our relationships. 
Harmony between individuals, harmony between nations, harmony between neighborhoods and communities. Peace, according to the Bible, is only possible because of what God does. Lasting peace, only available because of what God does. Would you agree that uh, there's not a whole lot of examples of lasting peace in our world? Would you, is, that, is that a true statement? Did anybody hear about, um, a couple, couple weeks ago now, um, the nation of Turkey was sending a boat to Gaza to bring relief supplies? Did anybody hear this story? It was in the news. Anybody? Anybody? A couple of us? Okay. So they're, they're sending this, this uh, ship with relief supplies because Gaza is kind of being blockaded by Israel right now. So they were sending relief supplies. Well, the nation of Israel said, if you do this, we're going to, you know, going to block your ship. And people ended up getting killed. It was a really big deal, right? So you can imagine, even if you haven't heard the story, how it goes. So, so Turkey now says, well, look, you attacked our ship, you killed our people, so then we have to retaliate. If you did this, then we have to respond this way. To which Israel says, well, fine, if you retaliate, then we're going to retaliate back to you, right? It's this very common sort of uncreative narrative of violence that we're all pretty used to. Here's the, here's the fascinating thing about the story. At the same time that all this is going on in the media— this like these threats back and forth. At the same time, these two nations are negotiating with each other uh, to sell weapons to each other. Like at the same time, it's like, if you do this, then we're going to do this back to you. At the same time, behind the scenes, Israel has these drones of some kind that Turkey wants to buy. So they're negotiating with each other to sell weapons to, to one. Like that's just crazy, right? That's insane. But it's totally normal. In an if-then world, it makes sense. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I, and I would contend, I would contend that peacemakers, living as peacemakers, only make sense within the kingdom of heaven. Outside of the kingdom of heaven, it's an interesting anomaly. It's an interesting exception to the rule. It's maybe a courageous stand to take. But to live your life as a peacemaker in the face of the world that we know, I would say only makes sense within a new reality, the kingdom of heaven, where you and I have been shown peace. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all of his, that's Jesus, fullness dwell in him, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Beatitudes, listen, the Beatitudes are an announcement and a description. The kingdom of heaven has come. New life is available. And here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven, and it's still good news today. It's still good news today. Would you agree? The kingdom of heaven is still the only saving news that this world has today. And it's been entrusted to you and I. It's not a band-aid message. It's not a spiritual trick. It's not a religious duty. It's not a mind game. No, no, it's good news. Why? Because something fundamental has changed in Jesus. We're not just telling ourselves interesting things. We're not just psyching ourselves up for something. No, Christians believe that in Jesus, the world has changed. And so we live as different people. A completely new reality, a new kingdom. 
where if and then doesn't make sense to any of us anymore. Um, we're going to spend the next few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, so get used, get used to this kind of language, y'all, because it's, it takes some work. Even those of us who've been Christians for a long time, we still live, we still live much of the time in this if-then paradigm. And Jesus is going to go at us over and over and over and over again to demonstrate that because the kingdom has come, blessed life is available for everyone. And he's going to show us what it looks like to live within that new kingdom. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we, um, at least I'm pretty aware of my inability to communicate uh, anything, 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 that would even help myself understand this new kind of life. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of how steeped I am in an if-then world. I'm aware of how when I get up every day, it's just my natural inclination to live this way, to expect relationships to respond to me if I treat them in a certain way, and then to withhold myself if they don't. I know that there's people who I don't apologize because they haven't apologized to me first. And so, and so Holy Spirit of God, we would just tell you that we need you to do um, some, some serious works on our minds and on our souls. We need you just like you did with your disciples. We need you to completely transform us. So that we're not just learning some new information, but that our lives are becoming more and more to look like our Savior. So I pray for our church right now. I pray for our church. And God, even as we look to the future, we look towards what you have for us. We look towards the ministry possibilities available to us. God, first we stop and we ask that you would completely, in whatever way you need to, transform our hearts and our minds. Turn us, Lord, turn us into into citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Turn us into people whose identity is is uh, grounded and rooted in you. So that every day, this would be our starting point. I am a beloved child of God. That is who I am. I am a citizen of a new reality, the kingdom of heaven that has come in Jesus and will come in its finality one day. That's who I am. That is where I live. And so the decisions that we make, the way that we talk with one another, the way that we spend our money, the way that we interact with our loved ones, that all of these things, all of these things, all of these things would reflect this new reality that we live within. Jesus, this can only be the work uh, uh, that, that, that you do in our lives. We can't, we can't force ourselves And so we give ourselves to you. We open our hearts up to you. We open up our minds to you. And we confess that we we are at the mercy of your grace. We are participants in your kingdom because of your grace. We rely on your grace, not just for our salvation, but for our every breath, our every move, our every decision. We are at the mercy of your grace. And so we surrender ourselves to you and to your grace, in the name of Jesus, amen.